That's how this starts. He didn't say, if you could make me your priority, then I'll become your, then you'll become mine. Because then I'm the initiator and God has to respond. But that's not scriptural. Scriptural is, when I was dead in my trespasses and sin, He wanted me. He died for me when I was dead. He's always the chaser. And can I just dare say, there is no other religion, idealism, or mindset on the earth where God is the, the romantic lover chasing after his own creation. And man has the responsibility to respond to that rhapsody except the truth of the Scripture, the Bible. Chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord, your God. Please never forget that. God is not giving the law to people who are not, who will not claim God as his God. Oh, we would love the world to obey the laws God sets up as standards. But if I could be honest, we can't even obey them without God's help. And if I can't obey them without God's help, how can I expect somebody who doesn't even have the surrender to God to accomplish these things? And the Lord starts by saying, can I just make clear I'm yours? And if I'm yours, can we lay out some law here, some priorities, so you don't go back to where I wasn't yours? And the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. And these ten commands, as we know, not suggestions or assertions, He's going to focus on the two most important relationships we will ever have. And the first of them is our relationship with Him versus the first four. The second is going to be from five to ten will be our relationship with each other. That's how this works. Think of all the things He could have done in His commandments, the commandments He could have done. Thou shalt tithe. Thou shalt be at Sunday church every Sunday. Thou shalt never miss an Easter. Thou shalt light the incense. Thou shalt. There's so many things he could have done. But when it sums up at the end, when the religious leaders go to Jesus and say, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, it's all summed up in one thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. He goes, in this, it's the entirety of the commands. Now understand, when God sums this up ultimately in Deuteronomy 6, he's going to go, if I just can sum all this up in one thing, let me tell you what I want. What I want is your love. That's what I want. Show me a God who wants my love. And you go, well, do you want my money? Do you want my time? Do you want God's like, look, if I had your love, you wouldn't even be asking me these questions right now. All I really want is your love. Everything else works its way out if I could have that. So here we go. Our first four. Verse three. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third or fourth generation of those that hate me but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commands. You shall not take the name of the Lord 
your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless whom takes his name in vain, and remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor to do all your work, but on the seventh day it's the Sabbath of the Lord your God, and it you shall do no work, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor the stranger that is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day before. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath or Shabbat day and made it holy or hallowed it. When our first four commands, and God gets right to it, He says, can I be your only one? That's how this starts. He doesn't want competition. Now understand, when God speaks about His relationship with us, He chooses two specific relationships. The relationship of a husband to a wife and the relationship of a father to his child. Now, I understand why those two relationships have been so assaulted on earth that we, even thinking of those relationships, some of us have hurdles and mountains to get over because of what we've seen in our own houses, what we've seen with our friends, what we've seen, what we've experienced as children. And then God says, I want to be your father. And you're like, no thanks. Or I would like to be your groom. And you're like, no thanks. And you tell some people Jesus loves you. And you'd be better to tell them that Jesus likes them because you're like, love. Oh, don't talk to me about love. I know what love is. Your heart gets broken, you're depleted, and you're so much less than you were when you started. I wonder why the enemy spent so much time redefining those roles. But God looks and he starts by saying, look, at what I want to be in its simplest sense is your first love. That's what I want to be. Now, I don't know if you have one of those. I know a couple people that married their first loves. It just makes me smile thinking about it. But there's something from what I know about first loves that it seems like people who have them, that no matter who they have, they kind of refer back to some degree. Unless God make us older so we could forget everything, which we tend to do in time. But the idea that there's something set inside of you that just becomes a standard for the rest of your life. It's like, I'd like to be that. I'd like to be your only one. In other words, what God is not into is God plus. God plus tradition. God plus a denomination. God plus a a politic. In the relationship between you and him, he wants no one there but you and him. Now, wait a minute. That gets in the way of a lot of things that we might have to clear up for a second. He's like, I don't want anything. Just me and you. That's all I want. Jesus didn't die so you could be with his mother. Jesus didn't die so you could pray to some guy who lived a thousand years later who died a nice death. Jesus died to be with you. That's the bottom line. But could you imagine me dropping the knee and saying, I want to spend the rest of my life with you? And she says, okay. And I'm like, well, now talk to my mother if you want to get a hold of me. How miserable that would be. And she's like, wow, I got ripped off on that deal. And I'm not trying to pick on another religion of any sort or even that which is called Christian But I am trying to make clear that God didn't make that even commandment two. He made that commandment one. Did you get that? He's like, I don't want any other thing before me. Now, what is a God? It's someone that you look for comfort, for security, for peace, for hope. And to be honest, if you didn't give your life to Christ at an early age, I didn't. I've already built where my comforts are, and none of them are good. I know how to run to the wrong things when things get rough. I know how to make bad choices when things get stressed. 
And the Lord goes, I'd like those gone. And to be honest, I'd t- me too. He's like, I don't want anything else before me. Anything that God says, can I take away? Can I move? Can I shape? Can I reframe? Can I redefine? And you say no, has become a God before you in front of him. And God wants to make clear, he's just not into that. And he says something really strange. He says, because I'm a jealous God. And you kind of think, well, isn't that a character flaw? Well, for humans it is. And the reason is that our jealousy is based on insecurity. There's the problem, right? And it's like, the Lord has never allowed me to be jealous with my wife. And the reason is that my, my wife is so modest, she would pass out before she even looked like she was flirting, even with me. It's pretty safe. But there are people that it's sort of like, you know, you're afraid to say hi to their wife because you're like, what, what, are you sure we're talking to the pastor for a long time? You know, that kind of thing. And you're like, my goodness. That's a character flaw. But God's not that kind of jealous. That kind of jealous just says, I really wish that I could trust that people would like me. Well, that's, God's, God's not bent on that. But there's another kind of jealousy. You see, the only thing you can be jealous of is something you want. Think about what that says. Now, I've brought this before, but just the same. I'm not from the South in America. I'm not a country music fan. I'm not a monster truck pull, let's get the big hat and the piece of straw. That's just not my gig. So if all of a sudden Allie wins a trip to go to the Grand Old Opry, where they have the Hoedown Express, right? No, okay. I'm not going to be jealous of that. I don't like coffee. Now, don't hate me for that. Don't be hating. This is church. But I don't like coffee. It tastes like dirt to me. Now, you're welcome to drink it, and I'm not telling you you're sinning for it. But if, if, you know, if all of a sudden Rodrigue winds up with this thing and Starbucks just gives him a, you know, a lifetime supply, well, you can bet I'm not going to be digging on that. But I'm not going to go, oh, man, dude, I wish I had. I'm like, good on you, man. It's all yours, baby. You won't have to worry about it. I don't eat liver. If we went to an all-you-can-eat liver palace, and you're like, we went to liver palace. I'm like, wow, I'm not jealous of that because it's nothing I want. Think of what you're jealous of. You're never jealous of something you don't want. And God never says he's jealous of anything but you. Did you get that? He's not, he doesn't look and go, man, I wish I had your iPod. The guy who invented the iPod got the information from God one way or the other anyways. He doesn't like, man, nice wheels, spinning rims. Woo, I wish I had your vehicle. God's like, you should see the chariots in Ezekiel. Man, that thing's got to look dumb comparison. There is nothing that you could own on earth that God would be jealous of unless it takes you away from him. Because what he wants is you. And he goes, can we start with that? Let's start with this. What I want, I mean, can you imagine God proposing? He's dropping the knee and he goes, let me tell you what I would really love from you. What I really love is for you to love me like I love you. It isn't like God's checking out other planets to repopulate them in some way so that he can kind of love you but kind of love them too because you're kind of iffy. He's not doing that. So no other gods before me. And then I know this, because you're human, you have this natural tendency to default to the tangible, you know, where you've got to grab a hold of something. And you know you're like that, and, and this happens, and I'm going to pick on this for just a moment, but I won't go long, in theory. Um, I know it may seem like it. Single people, you go, well, that's just easy for you because you're married. Well, look, you know what the bottom line is? If Christ isn't your fulfillment, 
married, getting married isn't going to fulfill you either. But you get that point where some people like to look at, you know, I need to get married because I need to touch someone, hold someone. I need to feel their hand on me. And I understand the idea that we could be tactile people. We'd like that. But when God says, look, I don't want anything that you can put, that you can touch, feel, smell, and hear, that you make that more important. And what happens is the moment you start playing that game, it becomes more important than the Lord does if you're not careful. And the Lord doesn't want that. So don't play that game with me, please. Don't say, well, you just, you know, I'm just waiting for you to esoterically speak to me and I have to, you know, I don't know, I have to open your Bible to find out what you're about. And, and then we get this verse, and by the way, and I, I don't want to develop this too much, but I do want to make sure that we, we address it. Some of you may have been told this thing called a generational curse. Have you heard this? And the idea of it's, and they'll, and they'll quote part of this verse to get there. They'll say, Amina! Your great grandmother, she was she was a nasty person, and she did some nasty things. And because of that, God gave her a goiter. And now that gener- generational curse. I mean, you need to go and get delivered from that. You need to go to a place where someone's going to wave and throw a hanky at you, and throw some oil on you, and slap you down, and then the goiter will leave you. And the generational curse will be. Well, excuse me. Look at what the verse says. He says, "Visiting the iniquity of the third or fourth generation of those that hate me." Did you get that? And the idea of this was not, let's find something so that we could be freaked out about the idea that what my grandpa did. The moment I fell in love with the Lord, it didn't matter because no matter where you came from. Now, there's no doubt, if you were raised in an alcoholic home, it's pretty likely you would have some tendencies. You could have some tendencies in that direction. People who tend to be abusive tend to have come from abusive situations. That tends to be the case. But the moment you give your life to Jesus Christ, you become a new creation. you got a new daddy now with a whole new DNA and you do not have to live who you once were. Glory to God. Because if I was who I was, I would never have gotten married or had kids. If I wasn't firmly convinced of that. So you're like, aren't you afraid what happened to your great-grandpa? And I come from really good stock for generational curse material. Let me tell you. But let me tell you what. I want to be like my dad. He loves me. His thoughts outnumber the sand on the shore for me. I think, yeah, my new dad is perfect, and I want to be like him. So following in generation, I got hooked up to a brand new generation, and it doesn't get any better. He's the king of kings, the lord of lords, and can I actually say it to you? He's the almighty. And if he's the almighty and I get to be his child, where in the world am I going for stuff? Could you imagine? It's like you just got adopted by the queen, but you run to the pound store. Someone goes, something not right with that. I know. Well, I'm, what's your last name? Well, but I don't want to talk about that right now. Look at God's like, look at, but I'll show mercy to thousands. Okay, you could look at this for a generation and a generation, but nobody wants to look at the part that he shows mercy for thousands. Funny, that's a bigger number to me to those who love me and keep my commands, shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Do you realize how big of a deal this is? And how little of a deal it is to us? We could be really offended when we sit in a store, we're shopping, and some person starts blabbing and uses Jesus' name in vain, and it'll bother us. But we'll shell out 15 pounds to listen to somebody say it 60 times in an hour. 
And then we'll, and we won't even think twice of it. And look at, this is what God says. The Lord will not hold that person guiltless. Do you get that? Let me tell you a little bit about that name before we move forward. His name is holy. His name is perfect. His name is powerful. Psalm 7, 1 says we're to sing praise to that name. Psalm 20, verse 7 says we remember that name. Psalm 102, 15 says the nations will fear that name. Psalm 113, verse 2 says that name is blessed and we bless that name. And Psalm 116, verse 4, we call upon that name. Joel says whoever calls upon that name will be saved. And 118.10, there's victory in that name. And 122.4, we give thanks to the name. And 124, verse 8, we have help in that name. 128.8, we bless in that name. Proverbs 18.10 says that the voice of the, or the, I'm sorry, 18.20 says that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says that we're justified in that name. Matthew 28 verse 19 says we're to baptize in that name. James 5.14 says we pray in that name. And to just to top it all up in case you were trying to get off with something, Colossians 3.17 says no matter what you do, no matter what you do, do it in the name of Jesus. That's what it says. Whatever you do. And if you can't do it in the name of Jesus, don't do it. You're like, well, I'm an exotic dancer. Well, if you can't do it in the name of the Lord, stop doing it. I'm a drunk. I'm drunk in Jesus' name. Doubt it. I'm a, I, I like to beat people up in Jesus' name. Doubt it. No wonder why people take it. You know what's in it amazing? Do you ever hear anybody start to oh, Buddha? You don't hear it. Even the enemy knows there's no power in that name, and I don't want to pick on him. Pick another name. It doesn't matter what it is. And it's amazing to me. The enemy knows there's power in that name, so if he could just try to get it so that people are so used to it. Let's be honest. Do you not hear the name of Jesus blaspheme more than ever even spoken in a public market? When was the last time you heard the name of Jesus and you went, Awesome! Is it true if you hear the name Jesus? Your first thought is, uh oh. Funny, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I thought Jesus was to be the abundance of my heart. It's amazing, the enemy isn't silent, but the church sure is hymning or humming at best. While the enemy goes out there and blows a trumpet, and we're still busy going, but you got a nuance, one, brother. Wow, the enemy's like in your face like this, and you're like, but just dance with them a little bit, and maybe later you can drop that J word, big guy, nice guy up. Jesus, that's the name. And according to Philippians, there's going to be a day when that name was proclaimed that anything that's ever had a knee will bow. Assume Satan's got one. It'll be fun to watch that. It's funny. Because we kind of know, and you can watch this, with people that say that they love the Lord, and we get so intimidated by the world, which, by the way, is supposed to flee at that name when the, when the darkness has come. And we kind of go, let me just tell you, I'm so thankful, praise you. You know what I mean? It's so awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was reading my Bible the other day, and let me just tell you, it was so awesome. God's cool. Yeah, Jesus. It's like, you know, it's like a word, because you just kind of know. You could say to a total stranger, God bless you, and they're like, yeah, cool, God's a toad, I'm good, whatever. You know. But the moment you're like, Jesus bless you, you're like, whoa, 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 judgmental. I just said, Jesus bless you, How, what did that judge? 
Because there is power in that name. And God's like, look it, you just need to know, you need to know, that name's not a name to be played with. God's like, I'm not going to miss that. If you are an actor, I want to warn you, and you have a part, don't take his name in vain, please. For your own sake, because you sat through this. You know what, if you're like, but I'll lose the job, then let God get you a better one. It'll be about time that some director actually heard someone stand up and say, you know what, I can do some of this crazy stuff, but I can't use that name in vain. What does it mean to be in vain? Vain vanity. It means it's worthless. To treat it like worthless. That dangerous part is we could use his name in vain that way, can't we? Because all of a sudden Jesus becomes less than what it really is, which should be that it should rattle the rifters. Do you remember when your heart would skip a beat when you heard his name? When you were so in love with the Lord, just the name of Jesus, you were like, yeah! That's my heart's desire for every one of us. Every one of these things should point us there. Because Jesus is the first love, by the way, in, in Revelation 2. He's the one who speaks and says, I'm your first love. That's what you left. When he says, don't miss the tangible. Don't run to the tangible. And God's like, because I'm about to become tangible here in a moment myself anyways. And so you want to know who I am. The idea of not taking my name in vain. And then you get to the last one. And this becomes the fun one of that. And then we actually pick it up for those last six. Keep the Sabbath holy. Keep the Sabbath holy. Uh-oh. So, and, you know, there are some churches out there, churches. Now, we're not just talking about synagogues, those things, but some churches that will tell you, you worship on a Sunday, you've got the mark of the beast. That, that, to me, is one of the most astounding things I've ever heard. You just worship God on a Sunday, you're going to hell. What was that? Now, understand, everything Jesus says, you search the Scriptures thinking by them that you have eternal life. They're the ones that testify of me. So how does that testify of Jesus? I challenge you. Remember, don't just believe anything I say. Search the scriptures and let them be the final say. But in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, it says, look at, there was a rest that God promised those people. And that rest didn't happen in the wilderness, and it didn't happen in the wilderness because they never got the promised land. So they said, well, maybe Joshua will get it because Moses brought them this law. But Joshua brings them into the promised land, and God said, I swore in my anger they shall not enter my rest. So they didn't even get it then. So wait a minute, when is it? But it says, you know what? The whole idea of the Sabbath is simple. And that is, we stop working and trust God. That's the, that's the bottom line. He's like, I'm going to give you twice as much on a Friday so you can gather it all in. So when I give you, when the people were in the wilderness, remember we're eating manna? So you don't have to do that tomorrow. You're going to have to trust me tomorrow. He says there was a land Sabbath. You actually worked the land for six days or six years. And on the seventh year, you let the land rest. You're like, well, what am I going to live off of? God's like, me. You've always lived off of me. That's the beauty of that, right? What's interesting is the people, I, I see people and they're just lazy. It ain't, it ain't that you playing Sabbath games. It's you're just lazy. Because what happens, you're like, I'm just going to take a Sabbath. I'm like, well, let me ask you something. God said here, you work six days and take a day off. How many days you work this week? I work three. I'm taking a Sabbath. God says, if you want to play the Sabbath game, work six and take your day off. That's what God says. But the idea, but he says, whoever has taken the Sabbath ceases from his work. That's the point of it. And then he says, you need to be careful to enter that rest. And can I just simply say it? Jesus is my Sabbath. See, without Jesus, I am working to make God happy. I'm working to try to make God, to, to fulfill those things. And Jesus, the moment that I accepted the gift of Jesus, I stopped working. Interesting, by the way, the Sabbath was not the beginning of the week. The Sabbath was the end of it. It was the end of your work. 
And if you're trying to work to make God happy, and maybe you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, but now you're like, well, now that I'm saved, you've become an employee. God's like, I'm just adopting employees. Let me just ask, those of you who are parents here, and I won't go on this long. Those of you who are parents, did you think, you know, you have your first kid, you look at him and you see a lot of hope and you think, you know, if I had six or seven of these, so much work would get done around the house. (laughs) I mean, any of you ever really think that's what's going to happen? Yeah, well, but you've learned since then, haven't you? Because you kind of know that after you have one, you kind of think, this is more work. Then you have a couple and you're thinking, this is a lot of work. I heard a, a guy say just recently, he had his fifth child, and he goes, you know what that's like? Imagine you're drowning. And as you're drowning, the waves are coming over you, and someone hands you a baby. That's what a fifth child is like. <laughs> now, I don't know that that's true, but that's what I was told. How many of you are actually part from families that are more than four people? Okay, I want to see. How many Ch- siblings? Six total. Six? Nine. Five. Five. Yeah, I kind of feel bad now. I only got nine. That's great. That's great. Five. Five. Six. Someone was telling me that there were like 13. There was like 13 children. Is that part of your family? Your mom was part of 15 children. Guarantee you she didn't work outside of the home. <laughs> Anyways, uh, listen, listen to me. Listen. What God really, really wants. Now, please understand, this is the way God laid it out. He created everything in six days. And on the sixth day, the last thing he made, the beautiful thing is a man. And then he said, I'm taking the day off tomorrow. Do you get the idea where God is on that? The idea of the Sabbath wasn't, tomorrow, don't do anything. Hello? Do you know what he did the next day? He walked with the Lord is what he did. And the Lord made stuff and he's like, try this. What is it? It's a peach. What's that? Just try it. So he's, imagine not, having ta- not knowing you had taste buds and you stick it in your mouth. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa this, is, this is a guy here, ladies. This is a guy. And he's like, try it. Oh, this is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make another thing. All right. Oh, take the watermelon. Yeah. And this is where God, this is the relationship that started between man and God. It's like, God's like, I'm taking the day off. That's what happened. Could you imagine if God made man, and then he's like, I'll see you later. I've got some more stuff to make. I've got like these, you know, these galaxies and some other things and stuff. I'll see you in another week. That's not the way God made man. He made man, and he's like, let's be together now, can we? We spend time together. And if we really think that keeping the Sabbath isn't that, we've missed the whole point of why God took the day off. It's like he never stops holding the world together, but the whole point is, it's like, look, I made you to be with me. And without Jesus, there's no being with God. Now that if we can reconcile those things, then we can get through the rest of it, which is how do we deal with each other? If I can't get through those first four, I will never do those other things the way that I should. I won't even do these well. But with that in mind, no, God moves us to the rest. No. This is what it says. Notice the first thing he does as we start to deal with each other is families. Did you notice he got right to that? He's like, deal with me. Make me your number one. That's what I want. I want to be your number one, your only love. That's why I want this to start. And as we can do that, then out of the overflow of that relationship, I'm going to let you love other people. That's how this works. So don't default to the tangible. Stop taking my name in vain. Stop, don't, it's not like other names where it's, it's like, look, you could take any other name in vain, but don't take mine in vain. And then let's rest together. And once we've gotten that together, when we're resting with the Lord, then I can actually look and go, well, what's the family supposed to look like? It's supposed to be a place of honor means to hold with great value. Honor your father and your mother, that your days would be long on the land in which the Lord, is, your God, has given you. Now, 
the natural response, of course, is a parent to quote this, and the idea is, oh, your days will be long if you obey. If you don't, I brought you in this world, I'll take you out. And that's kind of the idea. Interesting, Jesus uses the same kind of thing when, in regards to the religious leaders, because in Matthew 15, when he talks to the religious leaders, like, you guys aren't even, you're breaking the commandment. I mean, this is a commandment here, because you say that you're honoring your parents, but the things they need, you're not even giving them. You're calling them dedicated to God, but I'm like, don't call it dedicated to me when you're not even helping people with it. In John, by the way, 849, when they say to Jesus he's demon-possessed, that's got to be the craziest thing in the world to say that God's demon-possessed. Even some crazy churches won't say that. He says, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Let me tell you how important it was for Jesus. And by the way, the honoring of the Father evolves. I mean, in the beginning, you honor by obeying. As you get older, you honor by walking, you know, by obeying. And then as you leave the house, ultimately, your parents, let's face it, in the beginning, your parents changed your diapers. And if they live long enough, you'll get to return the favor. You honor them. Is my daughter around? I should be searching around and smiling. All right. But I think it's really interesting that God took a special note in John 19.26 that Mary, his mother, was at the foot of the cross and there. I mean, you'd think if there's any moment where you feel like you've had a right to have a bad day and just be grumpy, dying on a cross would be a good moment, don't you think? And at that moment, instead of Jesus thinking about himself, he looks down at his mother and he looks and he sees John, his disciple, next to him and he says, Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. And you go, what in the world did you just do? Look at it. He goes, Jesus like, I'm not going to be around. Mom, you're going to die older. Because you're going to die older, someone needs to honor you, take care of you when you get older. And since I won't do that, I'm giving John that job. What a, what a privilege for John. And by the way, he will. Tradition has it that he goes to, to Ephesus with them. With, um, and by the, by the way, you could visit all three houses that Mary lived in. Anyways, and get the shirt at each of them. Well, you get the idea that Jesus lived that. Verse 13, you shall not murder. That's number six. And you kind of go, duh. Notice it doesn't say you can't kill. It says you don't murder. There's a difference. Some will say, oh, well, then how could you punish a criminal? How is God going to allow capital punishment when he says you can't kill? He says, look at murder. There's a difference. Murdering is killing an innocent person. Jesus was murdered. Acts 5.30 says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. He knows how that, how that was done against him. You shall not commit adultery. When God chooses to show the pain that a person feels when his wife runs out on him, he uses a prophet named Hosea who marries a prophet, I mean, sorry, marries a prostitute, gives her every reason to stay, and then she bails on him, and then he buys her back for half the price of a slave. She's not even worth normal property in the sight of those people. And yet Hosea loves her, and God looks and he goes, now you know how I feel. That's what my people have done to me. In Revelation 21 and 22, God makes clear that there is a bride. Even Paul himself will say, I presented you as a chaste bride to Christ. 15, verse 15, commandment 8, you shall not steal. God knows this one. Interestingly enough, he took this personally as well. When in Matthew 21, 13, he clears the temple and he says, this was supposed to be a place of prayer, for a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. He's like, do you realize you're stealing? Now, what are you stealing in a moment like this? Do you think you're stealing because you're giving bad interest rate on the exchange? You're stealing people away from God is what you're doing. He even says that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he goes, don't do that. 
He takes that very seriously. The only time you ever see Jesus really getting tight like that. Verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Interesting. In Matthew 26, verses 59 and 60, we read that the chief priests and the elders and the council sought false testimony against Jesus. It would be that false testimony they would use to convict Jesus. Every one of these gets broken so that Jesus could be sent to the cross. Finally, it says, you shall not covet. Verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife. You kind of get that. I wish they had their house. I wish I had their wife. Nor the male servant or female servant. Now understand, in those days, a male or female servant, according to the Egypt, Egyptian mindset, was your possessions. So let me ask you. You ever look at someone's possessions and said, I wish I had their iPhone 10. Oh man, I only have the iPod 2. I think the new one's 3D. You know? Oh man, I wish I had. That's the idea of servants. Or even friends. I wish I had their friends. I wish I had their ox. Well, their ox, by the way, that was their tractor. Nor their donkey, that was their car. Nor anything that's your neighbor's. Because if we live by that kind of covetousness, friends, we'll never make God number one. We've already broken the first couple commandments to get there. Look at how this wraps up in this chapter. God has now laid out ten commandments. Where is Moses, by the way, when this is happening? Up or down? Down. Strange, huh? Now again, don't just believe me. Search it out. Verse 15, it says, or verse 18, it says, Now the people witnessed the thunders, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, and the people saw it. They trembled and stood afar off. Big noise. Ah! Have, you, have you ever had that? You ever ride a bike and a big vehicle goes by and every muscle in your body tightens up? You think you could break the handlebars? You're like, ah! Then you're like, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Big sound. People are like, came back in up. So they said to Moses, you speak with us, we will hear, let not God speak with us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, don't fear, for God has come to test you that you may fear, sorry, that his fear may be before you, that you may not sin. God says, look, at you're either going to fear everything or you're going to fear him. If you fear him, you'll fear nothing else. So the people stood afar off. Moses drew near the thick darkness where, the God, where God was. Now notice, now Moses has finally gone up the hill. Interesting. And you know the first thing God wants to talk about? The Bible tells us that the, the law was our tutor to lead us to Christ. That's the idea. That when you read these things, it isn't to try to make it so that you could get out of Egypt. It was so that you recognize you need a deliverer. And look at where God ends this. The Lord said to Moses, verse 22, read it with me. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, you have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver, gods of gold, you shall not make for yourself, but rather an altar of earth you shall make for me. And you shall sacrifice on and burn offerings, peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. Every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hewn stone. For if you use a tool on it, your tool on it, you'll have profaned it. You shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. And that's how the chapter ends. Now listen, the law that was weak, through the flesh, Romans 8, 3 says, because God, would, the law was in being weak, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, that on the account of sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. Now listen, this is what God says. Now that we've God talked about these, these commandments where I want to get Egypt out of you, let's talk about where I meet you. Interesting, God did not say, I'm going to meet you at the, at the law. 
Did you notice that? He didn't say, if you do all these things, I'll meet you there. Just do them and I'll show up. What he said is, I'll tell you where I want to show up. I want to show up at a place of a sacrifice. That's where we're going to show up. And this sacrifice is going to be really important. And notice he said there were two specific offerings. Now you tell me, blurt it out, what were the offerings according to this here, the two of them? The two offerings that were going to be put on this altar according to those verses, what are they? What's that? The sheep and oxen were the animals. Right before that he says what they are. The burnt offering and the peace offering. (coughs) Notice those are the two that are going to be given there. The burnt offering is a big deal. The burnt offering is the biggest bummer for a guy. And the reason is the burnt offering, all of the animal gets torched. It's complete and absolute surrender. That means no barbecue, bro. Sorry. But the good news is the other one. So the total sacrifice. When do we do something that's a burnt one? When out of my love for God, out of my own volition, I say, God, I want to commit myself absolutely to you, totally to you, and to commit myself totally to you, what I'd really love then is to give you everything. I want to give you everything. So I give you everything, and here's my animal, and I'm going to give all of the animal. Do you get that? That's the first of these two offerings. The second of the two offerings is a peace offering. Well, what's the peace offering? The peace offering is where two people were at enmity with each other, and now they've made peace. So let's just say Wally and Wanny, hypothetically two people, have had a fight. And they've argued because one likes cheesecake and the other took it. You know, it's one of those kind of things. And they finally got over the deal and they want to publicly let people know that they've actually become friends again. And they can't just do it by clicking friends on Facebook. So what they did is they take an animal, they... they Torch the parts that nobody really eats anyways, unless you're in Scotland. And then the rest of it, they bring out and they have this big bring and share. They, they barbecue and they send it out to everyone and they celebrate that the two of them have been reconciled. Do you get that? Don't miss this. God says, now that we've covered these laws... Let's talk about where I'm going to meet you. It's not going to be at the law. and won't be in Egypt. I've already met you there to get you out. I've already prevailed. We're going to meet at an altar. And the altar is going to be a place of total sacrifice. And it's going to be a place where we're reconciled. Did you get that? But he says, look it, it's going to be an altar of earth. You want to hear something really awesome? The word for earth there? There's different words. The Hebrew word eretz. Eretz, by the way, means the land. They often use it about that. The word for earth is the word adam. Like Adam. Same word, by the way, in its base term that's used for a man. Because man was made from the earth. Did you get that? He goes, that's what I want you to do. And look, at, you're not going to build it in a way that you're going to make it pretty. You can't make it pretty. You can't use a tool on it. You can't chisel it. And you can't put nice stones on it. This is not supposed to be the thing where you look at it and go, yeah, now that's a beautiful altar. You look at it and go, but that's so ordinary. Huh. And then I think of Isaiah. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we seemed to know. He grew up like a tender shoot, like an uncomely branch. He had no stately form or majesty that we'd be drawn to him. Jesus was not a hunk. He kind of looked more like some of you. (laughs) Some of us. He didn't glow in the dark. He wasn't eight feet tall. He didn't have that beautiful gold dish around his head. Because if he had any of those things about him, and Judas says, I'm going to bring to the guards, I'm going to bring you guys to him tonight, he wouldn't have had to kiss him. He just said, when we get there, look for the glowing guy. It had been easy. 
When Jesus says, who are you looking for? Jesus knows, well, here I am. And they all back off because they've gotten so close, they fall back in line. It's like, well, why aren't you supposed to be glowing? Aren't you eight feet tall? Aren't you, where's the dish? None of that. Do you get that? So listen, this is where I want to meet you. At a very ordinary looking place of total sacrifice. A place where we can be reconciled. But there's one other thing that you need to recognize in this. It's not at the top of the mountain, is it? He says, you need to make this where you can't go up. And people, this is where it gets nutty to me. You can't go up by steps because you'll show your nakedness. Remember all the guys, I mean, some of you, if you've ever been to places like, like Nigeria, you kind of know you kind of wear the muumuu thing, right? Well, the guys there, they wore these long things. And don't get this. This is where the Jewish people have gone with it, the religious leaders. I kid you not. The idea is you can't go up with steps lest you show your nakedness. So they go, well, don't use steps. Go with a ramp. Okay, here's the idea. So here you are, you're going up by steps, and sooner or later you're going to get to the point where someone's going to be able to look up your mumu. You get it? Now that's not so good. We agree with that. But that's okay because we'll just go up by a ramp. And that will be fine. You're totally missing the point of it then. And the point is, is that, notice what it says. God says, I will come down to you. Look, it says it right in the text. I will come down to you. And if you rise up, that's every, listen, 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 we're almost done here. That's every other religion. Every other religion is you go up to God. Christianity is God's come down to us. Ordinary, the place of perfect sacrifice, the place of an ordinary looking thing, but total sacrifice, and the place where man's reconciled with him. And he says two things. I will come down to you and I'll bless you. Did you see it in the text? It didn't say, rise up to me and I'll respond. It's like, I'm coming down because I want to bless you. But for that to happen, this place is going to get bloody. And it's going to be bloody with a total sacrifice. And that total sacrifice is going to be one where we're reconciled. Interesting, God did not say, make me this altar until, don't miss this, until he gave them the law. Did you get it? Because now that we've got the law, the issue is, are you going to use it to try to lift yourself up? Or are you going to use it to humble yourself because I'm going to come down to you in total sacrifice so that I can surrender everything to make it yours, to make you mine, to reconcile you. Now, as we go to prayer, and it's we're like on time, this is the weirdest thing, and we went through two chapters, the Lord's going to have to come back in a second here, right? <laughs> can I just say this, friends? Can I just say this? Look at, we sat in this room, it was, as far as we can tell, relatively warm, warmer than normal in this room, actually. We sang songs of praise today. And we listened for an hour as we walked through chapters 19 and 20 of the book of Exodus. And the fundamental point through this whole thing is God's the initiator. He comes down. He totally sacrifices to reconcile, to bless. He's the one who pulled them out of Egypt. They didn't earn that. He's the one then that's led them for the last three months. Now has led them to the same place that God promised Moses in Exodus 3 that he would be when ultimately when the people were coming out. And so let me ask you something, friends. Can I ask you? Have you accepted God's gift God's way? Are you still trying to climb? 
Are you still trying to rise up and you're going, don't worry, I won't do it by steps. I'll do it by a ramp. God will certainly be blessed with that. You know, I won't go big step today with Jesus and a big step tomorrow. I'm just going to kind of scoop my way up a little bit at times. Scoop my way up. God's going to be happy. But everything we do that we offer God that we think we've done for Him is still an extension of our self-dependence and independence from Him, which is not what He wants. Does that make sense? What God's looking for, to be honest, is surrender. Like any groom would to his bride. He's like, look it, I want to love you. I want to cover you in my love and in my grace and in my kindness. And all I would really like is for you to surrender to that and love me back. Have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? If you haven't accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'd love the honor today of praying with you. I'm going to do it right from here. I'm not going to ask you to stand up, twirl around, spin something, or light a banner. I'm going to pray a prayer and I want you to listen. And at the end of that prayer, if you agree, I simply ask for you to say, Amen. But look at right now, you recognize that if you haven't accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, there's a humbling aspect to this. What if somebody next to you already thinks you are, but you know you're not? What if you're supposed to have been some spiritual leader and look at where you're at now? If this thing starts with God making the move to come down in a tangible form to totally sacrifice Have you accepted his gift? That's all he's asking. At which point then, he yanks you out and makes you a brand new creation. If you have accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, are you still trying to climb on your own now? Are you willing to let God build these fences in a manner so that he could say, look at what I really want when we're done with this, is it's you and me, you and me. Not you, me, and my mom, you, me, and a saint, or a dead guy, or you, me, and an icon, or you, me, and some incense, or you, me, and whatever, you, and me, and a church, or a pastor. You and me, because when we get down to eternity, it's going to be you and me forever. We better get that right now. Hey, if the other things are a benefit, they're a benefit, but some of those aren't. But in that, it still needs to start. It starts with that. It starts with that relationship that God intended between you two. Will you pray with me? Lord God, I want to thank you for the privilege of being able to, to, to call you my God. I want to thank you, Lord, for how you've made clear that you've prevailed over my sin, my guilt, my death at the cross. And at the receiving of your gift, that you would consecrate me, that you would, your propositions, that if I would listen... I would obey. You'd set me apart and use me. You'd set us apart and use us. And you desire for us to be consecrated. And the moment I said yes, you put your Holy Spirit inside of me to start cleaning me from the inside out. So, so here I am seeking your presence, not so that you can manifest something so I could get a tingle, but out of selflessness, desiring to be used by you. I come with the desire for your presence to be manifested through me and not just to me. And in that, Lord, as you manifest, then you start saying, well, I want to start carving off some things, but let's get this straight first. You and me, and Lord, that's where I desire. You and me, first and foremost, that's what I hunger for. And then in that, Lord, you want us to treat each other the way we should. Our families to be prosperous and fruitful. Lord, yes, I agree. Make our families prosperous holy families. 
and the way we treat each other, Lord. Not full of covetousness and selfishness and bitterness. Jesus, you talked about that even if we haven't killed anyone, but we've harbored bitterness in our lives. It's the seed of murder. And, and if we've not committed adultery, but we've harbored lust in our hearts, we have that adultery already in there, uh, in waiting to manifest. And God, I just pray that you would eradicate from us anything and everything, Lord. Uh, Lord, that clearly doesn't, doesn't um, that takes us away from you and clearly doesn't reconcile with you. We want to take everything and surrender it to the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus, I do believe you died for my sins on the cross and you rose again on the third day just like you promised, just like your scripture promised. And if you are really willing to come down here to totally sacrifice so that I could be reconciled with you, then the the least I could do is say yes. So I say yes. Yes to your gift of love, that grace. Yes to the life you offer. And I say, here I am, I'm yours. I'm yours. Have me now, I pray. Jesus, in your name. If you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.